Well, good morning, Church at Harpeth Heights. How are we doing this morning? Great. That's a good welcome. I was about to have to ask for an encore, but y'all did good. My name is Mike Harder. I'm the pastor at Kairos, uh, which is a gathering that meets on Tuesday nights at Brentwood Baptist. And uh, when Pastor Fadi asked me to fill in for him, I did a little bit of research on you. I asked some of my friends about the church at Harpeth Heights just to kind of know a little bit more about you because I'd never actually visited you before. And what I heard over and over again is how incredible you are. Like legitimately, everybody was like, I love the people at Harpeth Heights. Every single person was like, the people there are incredible. And I just want to tell you, I found that to be true. When I came in this morning, I got greeted by every single person. There's a culture of hospitality here. I just want to just encourage that in you. Thank you so much for being so kind and hospitable to me and my family as we came in uh, today to worship with you. Now, I know that some of you don't know much about me, so let me just tell you a little bit about me and my family. Uh, my family is comprised of six individuals, um, myself, my wife, my four kids. So uh, i got a picture up here for you. That's my wife, Tabitha. She's from Columbia, Tennessee. Uh, so she's local here to Middle Tennessee. I'm from Columbia, South America. The two are not alike. Okay, they're like not at all. All right. So there's a little bit of a culture shock for us as a family every once in a while. She says things I've never heard before that are really, really distinctly Southern. And I'm just like, I have no idea what that means. Okay. So Tabitha's from Columbia, Tennessee. We've got three daughters, Abigail, Violet and Georgia. In fact, two of my daughters are right up here up front. And I'm just going to tell you this. I grew up as a pastor's kid. I sometimes sat in the front. My dad called me out in the middle of a sermon and it's like, stop doing that. So hopefully that will not happen today. Like I've already told them, like, hey, eyes on you, okay? So they're here up front. And then my wife is in the back with one of our other daughters, Georgia, and our son, Josiah, who I call Big Bit because he's the biggest kid you've ever seen. He's not a little bit, he's Big Bit. And he is an absolute joy. He's one year old and he is probably the happiest baby I've ever met. Now, today, if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, we're going to be talking about the church growing. And how they have to make space for more. And the reason why I told you about my family is that our family has consistently experienced growth. And we've consistently experienced having to make room for more. It was a culture shock for us when we had a third kid because we had to no longer have cars that could just fit our two children. We had to make space for more. So we went to the minivan. We're like, okay, we're going to just bite the bullet we're no longer cool, minivan time. Why? Because we have to make space for more. Every step of the way, as God has given us more, sometimes we felt like we have less. We have less money, right? Man, kids, they eat a lot. Going to Chick-fil-A is no longer just like a $20 experience for me and Tabitha. It's like 50 bucks, right? It's like, what happened? We have less time. Like our children take up our time. It used to be our Saturdays were a lot of fun for us. We'd just like sleep in. We'd go do some yard work. Maybe we'd go to the farmer's market. We had a lot of time. Now we're the Uber drivers to our kids' best life. All we do is take them from event to event, from, to, from birthday party to uh, sport games, uh, baseball, softball, whatever it is that they're doing. Like we consistently have less time. Why? Because we have more to love. And you find the same thing happening in Acts chapter 7. So let's read the text together and we're going to navigate how the people of God dealt with more. It says this, 
Acts 6, verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, today, the thing you're going to see is that ministry makes space for more. Over and over again, you're going to see them make space for more leadership, more growth, more relationship, because God blessed them. Now, our story begins with conflict. So a lot of times I hear people saying, hey, I would love for the church to go back to the beginning of the church where it was perfect and pure. But I've got to tell you some bad news. There was church drama day one in the church. Okay, so at any point in history of the church, there's been conflict and drama and issues. And you find them dealing with them right here in the beginning of the church in Jerusalem. And it's found primarily by uh, this group of people rising up and saying, we have a need. Because the church had expanded, there was a need that arose among some of the people that were attending church. Now, for most of these people, uh, we would not be able to tell the difference between them. But there were two primary factions in Jerusalem. There are the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. And they looked probably very similar to us. We would probably not be able to tell the difference between the two of them. But it was very uh, distinct to them. Kind of like if you talk to people from Nashville, if you're outside of Nashville, you can't really tell the difference between us. But you can tell the difference if you already live here. Like there's a big difference between the people that live in East Nashville and West Nashville, right? We know the difference. You can just look at their jean size. You can just tell the difference between the way they dress. Why? Because we're just different. We're all Nashville people, but we are all very different. The same was true between these two groups. And the primary difference is that the Hebraic Jews were from Jerusalem. They spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. But the Hellenists were people who had been uh, from other places, not from Jerusalem. Often these people moved to Jerusalem so that they could spend their last days near the temple before they died. So often elderly people would move to Jerusalem and they would move in among the people who already lived there. And then they would wait for God to call them home. And often the widows were left with nothing. And here's where the conflict arises, because people were taking care of the Hebraic Jews. They had more resources. They had family members who could take care of them already. But there was no one to care for the Hellenistic widows. And something had to change. Now, change is hard for us in the church. None of us like to change. We like to keep things exactly the same, don't we? There's something about human nature that loves to keep things the same. 
you've ever been to school, which I think most of us have, you notice that there's a phenomenon, right? The phenomenon is this. When you show up at your class, whatever class it is, you find a chair. And when you sit in that chair, that is your chair for the rest of the semester, right? You find that seat, whether it's you're a front right person or a back right person, you find your seat and it's your chair. No one can sit in it. You sit in it the entire time of the class. And the same thing is true for church, right? Like some of you are sitting in the same chair you've always sat in. Like that's your pew. That's your seat. When somebody comes in and doesn't know that it's your seat and they sit there, you're like, I'm completely disoriented. Like, A, I'm glad that you're here. But B, what do I do? Where do I sit? You're in my chair. Why? Because we get really used to our experience and we don't like to see it change. And this is what is happening among the early church members. They've already found status quo. They've already found their systems. They've found their leaders. And now they have to face change. This is the first dramatic change in the structure of the church. And no one knows what to do. There's conflict between the people who are attending and their leadership. And so they come to the the leaders and they say, what are we going to do? But every time that there's an opportunity to change, God wants to do something within his people. And we can either choose to lean into it or to run away from God's plan and his provision for his people. And here you find God doing something incredible. He does something unseen before this moment. He creates an opportunity for more. And he does that through creating space for more leaders. So um, I want you to look with me in verse 2. It says this. Says the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. The disciples say, Listen, I know that you want us to take up this task. I want you uh, to know, though, that God has called us for a different purpose. God has called us to lead the flock, not feed the flock. And so we must find another solution. And so they propose this. They say, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, at some level, this sounds like the disciples say, hey, we're too good for this job, right? Others should feed the flock. We need to lead the flock. We have our role. Please don't bother us. But that's not what's happening here. The same word is used for feeding and leading. The word diakonos in Greek. And the disciples say, it's our role and our responsibility given to us by Jesus Christ to teach the people what Jesus taught us. That's our calling. That is our lane. And we cannot deviate from it because it would be keeping ourselves from obeying Jesus. So we must find somebody else to take the role of feeding these people. And we want to make space for more leadership in our church. We cannot do all of the work. And they do not really differentiate between serving a table or serving people the word. They use the exact same Greek word to describe both. And what you need to hear here is that there is no particular greater blessing 
to lead from the stage than it is to lead at the table. God wants to use all of us. And this is an onboarding moment for some of the greatest leaders the church had seen up to this moment. And we find them listed here. We find seven men who are named to be leaders. And we don't know a lot about them, although we do know that they are probably Hellenistic as well, because all of their names are Greek. They're all Greek men who are called up to raise, uh, to be raised up to serve these people. And so you find their names here. And I just kind of want to take a moment just to unpack who they are, because it's going to help us understand what's next here for us as a church. So there are five, uh, there are seven men. Uh, four of them we know very little about. So we don't know very much about Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. We know very little about these four men. But we do know quite a bit about Stephen, Philip, and uh, Prochorus. So Prochorus, from what we know in church history, helped write the Gospel of John. He surfaces later as a co-writer of the Gospel of John with the Apostle John. So God raises him up first to serve tables and then writes one of the most incredible accounts of Jesus' life and ministry alongside John. So God does something in him at the beginning to serve here and then raises him up to lead. Then you find Philip. Philip began as a deacon, but soon began to preach. And when the church felt opposition in Jerusalem, when a great persecution came against them, Philip left and went to Samaria. Now, the reason he went to Samaria is because Jesus said that his followers would be there the witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So Philip goes, we've been in Jerusalem. Next place is Samaria. I'm going to go there. And he does. And he begins to preach among the people that were the most reviled in the entire region. Jews had very little to do with Samaritans. And yet Philip says, I'm going to go there and I'm going to preach Jesus. And when he does, the people of Samaria return to the Lord and give their lives fully to him. And there's a massive revival that happens there. But God's not done with Philip. God then sends him to the middle of nowhere, to the Gaza Road, where he shares the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch who then takes the gospel to Africa. So Philip is no longer simply someone who's serving in another country. He's serving an entire continent. All because the church gave him an opportunity to do more. Then you have Stephen. Stephen is described as a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen does not have a very long ministry, but he has a very powerful one. Acts chapter 7 tells us that Stephen begins to preach and he does some of the same miracles that Peter and John are doing. And people are getting healed through his ministry because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He begins to preach. He gets arrested by the Sanhedrin. And in his defense, as they ask him, why are you doing what you're doing? He preaches one of the most powerful sermons in history. The sermon is so good that at the end, Stephen looks up into heaven and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I don't know what kind of sermon would make Jesus stand and go, well done, slow clap. You did a great job. But that's what Jesus does. Jesus stands in recognition of Stephen's service. And when I hear these stories of these people who were used by God, like Philip, Stephen, Prochorus, and the rest, my question I need to ask myself and, and you here in this room is, 
What would it have been like if they had never been appointed to the task of being a deacon? Like, what if they had always stayed on the sideline? Where would we be today as a people of God if they had not been called? I played football in college. And when I say I played football, I really mean I practiced football. I didn't get in the game a lot. Practice as a wide receiver, but on game day, I was a center guard, which means that I was center of the bench guarding the water. Like, I, I literally was not in the game very much. And let me tell you, it's a lot more fun to play football than watch football. It's a lot more fun to be in the game. And you find these men step into ministry. But my fear is that many of us are still on the sidelines because we are unwilling to step into what God has called us to. We don't see the issues around us and the problems that are facing in our churches and our communities, and we do not rise to meet them. Why? Because we have a small-minded mentality. We have a me mentality where we don't think beyond what we see in front of us. So the disciples were faced with this issue. And the issue was this. When they come to them, they say, we need you to take care of the need. I have here an illustration. So we'll see how this goes. The illustration is a pie. Now, this pie I got from Publix last night. It's a key lime pie. Anybody like key lime pie in the house? Okay, some of us. It tastes like summer, doesn't it? All right, so this key lime pie is delicious. Anybody after the service that wants can come up and have a slice of it. You just can come take it. Uh, but this key lime pie, race, cut a slice out, uh, is an example of how many of us see the church. We say, uh, I need to have my slice of the pie. And when I have an issue, I need to go to the leadership and get a slice of their attention. If they don't sign off on it, then I can't do it. If the leaders who are already in place don't have a bandwidth to do it, then it cannot be done. This is a small-minded mentality. This is not a biblical mentality because what the gospel teaches us is that every single person in this room, if you're in Christ, you are a priest. You are an equal heir. And God has called you and equipped you for gospel ministry. And when we think about the world simply as saying, hey, I need to make sure that we have our slice of the pie of resources and attention and authority and power. What we do is we begin to minimize what God can do in us and through us and through our church. And we start saying, all that matters is that I get part of the pie. But God has a bigger mentality than that. With God, there's always more pie. He's like, man, listen, we got key lime. We also have. Man, I don't know. This might break apart. We also have this one. Custard pie. God always has more pie. He does. He's constantly thinking about new and different ways to do ministry. One of the things I love about Brentwood Baptist is that we have modeled this from the top all the way to the bottom of our organization. Our pastor, Mike Glenn, could have said, hey, you know what? All that matters is Brentwood Baptist on Concord Road. That's it. 
But we've said, no, there's space for more. We want to create more opportunities for teachers and leaders. Let's have some campuses. Let's create space for more. Let's raise up other leaders. Let's find opportunities for people to serve. And every significant ministry at Brentwood has come from the people of God saying, we see a need. Can we meet it? That's why we have a deaf ministry. That's why we have a special needs ministry. Why? Because there were people in our church that said, there is a need. We're going to rise up to meet it. Why? Because there's always space for more in God's kingdom. Now, the ultimate question as to why we should do this is simply this, is because in our going, God uses us to bring more people to know Jesus, which is God's mission. He wants to reconcile people from every language, tongue, and tribe. He wants to bring people to himself. So I want you to jump down with me in verse 7. Just see what it says here. It says, So the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. As a result of the obedience of the church to raise up these seven leaders, more people come to faith in Jesus, including priests, which I I usually gloss right over that. I was like, cool, priests got saved. No, the priests were the ones who are serving God in the temple. They're like, there's only one God, and it's Yahweh. To make them come to a place where they're like, and also Jesus is a radical transformation for them. And the reason this was possible is because the church raised up more leaders. So as a church tonight or today, what I want us to consider as we close out is simply this. What is God calling you to do? What is God raising you up for? What has God already put on your heart as a burden that you can meet in this community and in your neighborhood and in this church? You know, ministry is not simply based off of the leadership and the giftings and the talents of our staff. It's it's your gifting and your talent and your calling. So how can we unleash that? We're about to do a uh, deacon nomination round. Some of you men have not been named deacons yet, but God has put that on your heart. Maybe this is a time where you say, man, I'm going to receive that call. I'm going to step into leadership. There are opportunities to serve here at the Church of Harpeth Heights. Maybe God is calling you to serve in a way that currently has need. Maybe in the kids ministry as a greeter. But maybe there's something that isn't even named yet. Maybe there's a ministry that doesn't exist yet. That God wants you to help start. Maybe it's partnering with foster and adoption. Maybe there's something God wants you to do that you are feel, feel God's calling, but you're scared to step into it. But God is calling you to more because there is always more pie. There's always space for more. So as we close out, I simply want to just lead us in a prayer of just openness to what God may want to do in us. So would you pray with me? Jesus There are men and women in this room who love you. And I'm so grateful for them and their life and who they are. God, you've gifted them with talent and resources and connections that they can use for the gospel. God, I know there's some in this room who are wrestling with the call to ministry. You may be calling them to serve you with their life as a vocation. God, I pray that they would have the courage to say yes. 
God, I know there's others in this room who feel a burden for their neighbors. <laughs> they feel a burden for the people that they, that they do life with. God, I pray that you'd give them the courage to begin that Bible study or to begin to, to invite those people to church. God, give them favor with their friends. God, I know there's still others in this room who feel that you've placed a specific calling on their life and, and they've been thinking about it and wrestling with you about it for years, but today isn't going to be the day that they're going to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, can we do this? God, I pray that you would call them to gospel work. Why? Because you have unlimited horizons for us if we're willing to follow you. You'll take us to places we never thought we would ever go. And through it, you will draw people back to yourself. So God, I pray that you give us eyes to see what you want us to see. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.